This is Down the Aisle Wrestling Podcast, where we only make one promise. We will always reach for that. Crash Raymond. With Robbie Mack and Kevin Laramay. Here's Kevin Laramay. And welcome to Down the Aisle Wrestling Podcast, best of 2015. Today on the show, we have four interviews, our best interviews of 2015. We're going to start with Dan Severn, one of the Hall of Famers, UFC Hall of Famers, a great man in pro wrestling and in mixed martial arts. So we start with Dan Severn, Dan the Beast Severn, followed by Kenny Casanova, the author of Kamala Speaks with Kamala, which is James Harris, followed by the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. And to finish the show, front of the show, Jimmy Corderas of Aftermath on Sportsnet 360 and formerly of uh, The Score for Aftermath and Right After Wrestling. So without further ado, here's Dan the Beast Severn. Joining us today on Down the Aisle Wrestling Podcast, a UFC Hall of Famer, the only Triple Crown winner of the Ultimate Ultimate Champion, Super Fight Champion, and UFC uh, Tournament winner, Dan DeBeast Severn joins us today. Dan, how you doing today? Well, I'll tell you what, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I'm actually out in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, so the sun is shining. Uh, I would not be wearing the same outfit back in the state of Michigan uh, without freezing. Well, in Montreal right now, it's minus 40 degrees Celsius, so I wish I was with you in Arizona, I can say. Yeah, I trust me. Uh, just uh, the, the, just talking to some of my family members back in Michigan, you know, they just got hit between, I don't know, a foot and a half to almost two foot of snow in the last 24 hours. And uh, I might go on, <laughs> gee, I wish I could be there, you know, not. <laughs> exactly. The, the one thing I want to start with talk to you about, Dan, is I was reading a lot on you the last couple of days getting ready for this interview, and a story really caught my attention in the mid-80s at the U.S. National Trials for the Olympics. You lost at the final, a controversial loss that changed your whole perspective and your whole career. Can you explain to us how the, the controversy be in that match and how it changed your career? Well, uh, the first way how it changed my career, uh, we, you and I probably would not be conversing here today because I would have retired back in 1984 had everything gone the way it should have gone for me. Um, my, my background has uh, been heavily involved in the uh, sport of amateur wrestling. So I've been involved in the sport since uh, 1969. I won the first national title in 1972. So uh, my goal was uh, I always wanted to win the Olympic gold medal. And I, my first Olympic trials I tried out in 1976 and uh, kept repeating every uh, every four years, uh, looking for that cycle, and uh, I mean, literally, I had tried out for the uh, uh, 76, 80, 84, 88, and 1992 was my my last hurrah trying out for it before basically old age was uh, setting on in. So uh, um, I just tell people that I should have been the Olympic representative. I should have been the guy to have won the Olympic gold medal. Uh, but instead, I had to watch uh, the person ahead of me uh, win the uh, gold medal without giving up a single point. And uh, everybody who he, he went against, I had pinned in underneath one minute. So it would have been one of the easiest gold medals in the world for me to have won. And so I just tell people that 
uh, that, that incidents right there basically inspired me. I'm not sure if I might use that as my word, but I, I will use that. It was my inspiration to pursue... Um, Uh, you had a in MMA beginning. You're a pioneer. You're a legend in this sport. You were there at the early beginning. UFC five was probably the one that caught my attention. Being 11 years old in 1995, watching this VHS tape that I found at my video store, and figuring out that they finally did the tournament of all the tournaments that I wanted to see, and it uh, had the occasion to be number five because I missed the first. It was the first one I've seen. So you really caught my attention when I was a kid. And watching you, I was a wrestling fan too, watching you step into the octagon looking like a guy I'm used to watching on wrestling just became a big fan. And that night really caught my, sparked my imagination because winning a tournament, fighting three different times in one night, it must have been something out of this world. Can you explain to us the mindset you had when you stepped into the octagon uh, the first time that night? Well, I tell you what, uh, you know, again, for your, your your listeners, just to kind of educate them a little bit, because people, I'll say people in the, in the States are definitely a whole lot more forgetful than other countries. <laughs> Half the time when I say that I do these interviews, I'm, I'm being an educator at the same time just to tell people what the background is, because most, most are familiar with mixed martial arts, but mm -hmm. that term really did not uh, become coined until, I'd say, around the, the middle of 2000, sometime around that uh, 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. was mixed martial arts, the term given to this cage fighting industry. And the product mixed martial arts today has approximately 37 rules. Part of those 37 rules are there's weight classes, time periods known as rounds, uh, weight classes, and uh, you fight one opponent in a given evening. Back in the NHB, otherwise known as No Barred Era, there were only two rules. Those being, do not bite your opponent. Rule number two, do not stick fingers in their eye sockets, otherwise known as No Eye Gouging. End of the rules. And people would say, well, no, you, you can't do this or you can't do that. Uh, yeah, you could. There, you know, that's where people couldn't believe that you could actually pull someone's hair. You could grab their clothing. You could knead them in the groin. I mean, it's just, yeah, as long as you didn't bite someone or stick a finger in an eye socket, you're good to go. No weight glasses, no time period, bare-knuckled action. And it was an eight-man tournament, just like you said. You had to face and defeat three opponents in the same two-hour pay-per-view that they run today, you had to go through an eight-man tournament. So that was just a whole different raw type of uh, format. So I guess with all that said right now, what was actually your actual question? Uh, just wondering your mindset going to the octagon when you first fought that night against people of different sports, of different backgrounds, because back then every single competitor had a different background sure. were dubbed the wrestlers some of them were boxers some of them if you're our gentlemen were boxing oh, what boxing so, yeah. practitioners yeah 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 everyone knows uh, could I, I say that you know most everyone including myself was a one-dimensional athlete you just brought just really one discipline to uh to the cage um so literally what was my mindset i, I think that my amateur wrestling career prepared me quite well i mean i did have the opportunity to watch the very first two uh, UFC events. Uh, a friend of mine, I didn't watch them live on a pay-per-view, a friend of mine who watched the first two, 
he uh, copied them on an old VHS tape, and he brought it over to me, and he said, hey, you ought to think about doing this. And, uh, you know, there I'm seeing people getting sucker kicked in the face and teeth are flying out, and I'm like, you know, this, these are not exactly skills I possess. But then when he pointed out, he goes, well, look at the skinny guy doing jiu-jitsu. Of course, he was referred to Hoist Gracie, and I had never really been exposed to jiu-jitsu, so I thought, well, it kind of looks like uh, wrestling to me. I, I figured that if a guy is close enough to throw down, I either uh, move out of range or, or get closer or clinch so that uh, they, they can't get any kind of... Uh, real velocity on it in the first place and that that little uh tidbit really there served me quite well over the the, the next couple decades um walking into there I, I really didn't think about anything um i had uh, trained for all of five days an hour and a half a day for the preparation of a no holes barred match but i did not train a single strike i did not train a single legit submission uh unlike uh, today, where you can find a cage in almost any community, because you have these mixed martial arts gyms that uh, have either a cage or a section of fence that athletes can uh, train uh, train against or with, um, the, the closest thing I could come up with was a professional wrestling ring. So from Coldwater, Michigan, I traveled over to Lyme, Ohio, with Al Snow and a couple of other professional wrestling protégés. And they had one old pair of boxing gloves between the three of them. They simply just were trying to punch, kick, and do whatever crew-type submissions that they could. And when one would get tired, they would give the gloves to the next guy, to the next guy. And I just stayed out the entire time until I finally got I was tired and then uh, I'd take a break. And then we'd just do it again. But I never trained a single legitimate strike, never trained a single legitimate submission. So when I walked into the cage for the first time, I was asked what was my martial art. And I just simply said to them, I'm an American wrestler. And they kind of looked at me like, well, what's that going to do for you? And I go, I'm not sure. I guess watch and find out. Well, uh, Dan, I, I'm I'm going on a limb to say that it, it really did work out for you uh, as far as um, being a legitimate wrestler. And speaking of wrestling, I want to fast forward a bit to 1995 when you entered Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And you were working with Jim Cornette, which eventually led to you transitioning into uh, the WWE, the WWF at that time. Uh, can you tell our listeners exactly how that transition happened? Did uh, Vince contact you or did Jim Cornette kind of go to Vince on your behalf? How exactly did you find yourself all of a sudden fighting in Smoky Mountain Wrestling? You're the NWA champion and then you're in the hottest era of professional wrestling as far as the WWF went. Well, I mean, uh, my first profession was professional wrestling. I uh, I started training professional wrestling as of the 1992 Olympics. You know, once that was done, um, I started, uh, you know, a new rule came down from the United States Olympic Committee that allowed athletes to be both amateur professionals simultaneously. Prior to that, prior to that, had I turned pro, I would have lost my amateur status and would have been ineligible to compete anymore. So my amateur wrestling career meant a great deal to me. So I stayed amateur up until 92, jumped into doing professional wrestling then. And then by 1994, the uh, cage fighting stuff started emerging. And then I just had a dual career since that time. Kind of of like a modern-day Deion Sanders. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, well, you see, there's a lot of these guys uh, that are right now any of the mixed martial arts or professional wrestling that are trying to cross back and forth here right now. You know, you've got uh, Brock Lesnar, you've got CM Punk, uh, you've got, uh, well, Kurt Angle was talking about it. You have uh, 
uh, Tito Ortiz has bounced back and forth. You you have uh, oh, there's 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 still probably half a dozen other guys that I'm just missing their names are right a fan that that uh, are dab- was talking about it. in both. Yeah, Alberto Del Rio is talking about it as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like said, there's a number of other guys there, too. I mean, I'd say that Brock Lesnar is probably one of the, the more notable names here right now in mm-hmm. the current. current um, there's a couple of people even in, uh, oh, gosh, I just, I'm just drawing some blanks here on some names. Oh, no, no worries, Dan. Uh, after you got to WWF, probably one of the more, I wouldn't say the more memorable things from that tenure, maybe the most infamous uh, things, was the was the Brawl for All. Now, if I remember correctly, you were in the Brawl for All, you beat the Godfather, and then all of a sudden the Godfather was back in the tournament. What exactly happened, what, and how did the guys backstage take to the WWF Brawl for All? Well, I mean, uh, I, I really can't explain too much on that. I mean, it was uh, something that... Uh, you know, you know, there was a, a meeting that was called. You know, we, uh, we we were at a show, and I don't remember where we were at at, at the time. But uh, a couple of the uh, the road agents simply uh, asked all the talent to come together in the cafeteria. And they were going to have a quick little meeting there, and then this this concept of the brawl for was being explained, and that everyone was going to be in the brawl for except for Ken Shamrock and Dan Severn. And basically, as soon as I more or less heard that, it was kind of like, well, do you need me here anymore? And then they're like, no, and I kind of left uh, the meeting uh, there. But then several weeks into this brawl for all concept, I happened to be in back, uh, you know, just probably uh, relaxing, uh, doing doing whatever. And one of the road agents came up to me and said, how would you like to be in the brawl for all tonight? And I go, well, I just said, well, how much against who? Uh, they gave me the price and the opponent. I go, okay. I said, and I just said, uh, I said, uh, I don't want to wear the gloves, though. Okay. And they looked at me they're like, well, you can't go better knuckle. I go, well, I said, I- I'll never throw a s- single strike. I said, but I will show you what a real wrestler is capable of doing. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't really get my way. They, they made me wear the gloves. I actually wish I would have just been walked out to the ring and would have just uh, demanded to have them cut them off because you have to uh, realize this is live while it's happening. I could have gotten away with it at that point in time, but it's just, uh, just one of those things where you know, when you can look back at it now and think, well, geez, I, I wish I would have done it like this instead. But as it was, I mean, I, I tied the Godfather all up, took him down. But it was difficult when you got these 20-ounce gloves on your gloves, really restricting your ability. Even in my career of cage fighting, I only ever, I only wore gloves within, let's say, the last, uh, I don't know, I'll say 10 years or less of my career that I wear gloves. And even then... It was changing state by state to where uh, only twice ever in my career was it mandatory that I had to tape my hands. And I said, well, what's the bare bones minimum that you allow to be called taped hands? And they're like, well, one piece of gauze, one piece of tape. You know, and they were almost being facetious as they said that to me. Well, I put one piece of gauze one piece of tape wrapped around, and as I'm slipping my gloves on, it's falling off. 
And and then these these athletic commissioners like, how is that supposed to protect your hands? I go, I go, you don't understand what my skills are. The way that that they, if you have a, a professional tape job done on your hand, it really restricts your mobility of your hands. I go, I'm not going to win this match because of my striking ability. I'm going to win this match because of my grappling ability. And it, once I do take people down and, and put them on their back, or if I'm even underneath them, when I am striking them, most of my strikes are going to be kind of like a hammer type style to where you're never going to break your hand. The only time that you can break your hand is when you throw out direct type of punches or hitting it down to the knuckles. I mean, I, I just, I, I went to my entire cage fan career and never hurt my hands whatsoever. Kevin, I, um, I just wanted to quickly ask Dan, um, my growing up, I was a, a, a obviously a fan of wrestling, but my favorite wrestler growing up was Owen Hart, and you had a, a very memorable feud for me with Owen Hart. Would you be able just to tell tell us a little bit uh, about what your memories were like working with Owen, and if you could fight wrestle anybody, be it past or uh, or present, who, who who would you who do you think you would batch up the best with uh, nowadays? Yep, sorry about that. Some dogs in the background there. I just had to calm them down for a second. No problem. So, uh, no, I, to answer your question, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was uh, an honor and a privilege to, to have done matches with, with Owen. And in the beginning, I, yeah, I didn't really know who he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I knew about the Hart uh, family and their, their legacy in wrestling. So that was, uh, you know, I, I was aware of that. Now, getting to know Owen, after a while we got to know him, I mean, yeah, you know, he had a great sense of humor. He was a great prankster. Um, were you he ever made... a victim of any uh, Owen's ribs? Say again? Were you, any, uh, were you ever a victim of uh, any Owen Hart's uh, pranks? You know, I, I just, no, I think, I mean, he, he, he I, I think he tried to pull a few jokes on me in matches or tried to break me out of character, make me okay. laugh or Yes, in, in, the, in the middle of trying to do something serious live out in front of people. Okay. You know, so, I mean, I, I was never on a receiving of a rib other than simply trying to, uh, you know, make me break character or something like that. That was, you know, something else. You know, the, the, the unique part is there to be at the Hart residence while they were shooting the dungeon match between uh, Ken Shamrock and Owen Hart, and I was the guest ref- referee, so... You know, for several hours while they're setting up the lighting, the sound, and all that kind of stuff down there in uh, in the basement. Here I am. I'm upstairs, uh, you know, sitting by uh, Father Stu and uh, just listening to him, uh, you know, just talk about stories and stuff like this. I'm just you know, just politely just listening to him just regale the story and different people ask him questions and stuff like that. And that was uh, pretty unique. But, you know, getting back then to Owen there was unique things that we could do because of his amateur wrestling background. I could do some more things with him. I could not do with a normal professional wrestler. So we could do uh, some things called like pummeling and stuff like this. I could do some legitimate amateur wrestling techniques that he would know how to react to properly and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, most professional wrestlers are just to be so, so just skilled of doing just one thing and that's professional wrestling. So, but, but, but even as you see now, the influence of mixed martial arts and how uh, several professional wrestlers have included submission techniques or striking type techniques or they're wearing um, 
type parts of uh, the, the, the MMA uniform, you know, gloves and things of that nature, or shin pads, kick pads, just so that they're showing that influence from that sector going to, into the matches. But, you know, working well, with, uh, you know, with Ken Shamrocks uh, and with uh, Owen Hart and with Steve Blackman, uh, that was kind of like the, the, the four of us were in, involved in, in, a, in a few different things there together. Dan, if we're looking at your overall career, there's one question that a lot of people ask uh, athletes that did both sports, uh, amateur wrestling and pro wrestling. Compared to uh, fighting and uh, no holes barred or mixed martial art, compared to pro wrestling, which is hardest and which is hardest on your body? Which one was the easiest to do? Well, I mean, for me, again, I, my, my perspective, the professional wrestling was harder for me to do um, than what than my uh, shoot career, just because I've been doing my shoot career so many more uh, decades before it. Even though, I, no, I wasn't doing cage fighting, but being an amateur wrestler since 1969, I won my first national. I started teaching the sport of wrestling in '71. I've won my first national title in '72, so I, I had so many more decades of experience doing it before. By you know 1992, jumping in, into it. Uh, prior to that, you know, I, the, the the mindset that was difficult to, to me is when I when I stepped into a cage, or a ring, or on a mat, I had an opponent. Now, when I step into the squared circle of professional wrestling, I have a partner, and that was that was tough for me to do because now I'm listening, I'm listening crowd reaction, you're listening to the referee, you're, you're listening to your partner in different ways. So literally, there's just a whole different type of magic that's taking place. Whereas before, I mean, I could walk out in front of, uh, you know, uh, thousands of people, and I could, I could tune them out. I could tune the referee out to where all I saw on that mat or that ring was an opponent. I mean, just I, I, I'm just really good about going at that little focused land and being there. So I had to learn a different thought process going into it, and even executing the various moves and techniques of the nature. So many of the guys would be saying, "Lighten up! You're just you're, you're like the pipe wrench on me." And I'm thinking, "Gee, I'm trying to be. I'm, I'm I am <laughs> I am being light on you. I am uh, I am being loose." But at, you know, because you know, a lot of these wrestlers would wear like baby oil too on them so they would make their muscles stand out and glisten and I'm thinking you know how tough it is to hold on to somebody when they've got baby oil on to them and, and, you're, and you're supposed to be responsible for their safety that is like the most basic rule 101 of professional wrestling is you protect me and I protect you but I see more and more there really isn't that honor taking place it's it's so selfish, or I should say becoming so much more selfish, where most people look at themselves as an individual, and they just look at it, what's in it for me? And the reality is, if you want to have a good professional wrestling match, it's a partnership, but it also includes that referee, because if that referee is not there to do their job, that could screw up the psychology of your match as well. Absolutely. Before we let you go, Dan, is there anything you would like to promote or talk about? We know you're in Arizona right now training the Arizona State University, the Sun Devil, because you're the original Sun Kiss kid. 
How is the season going in uh, ASU? I mean, they've got a brand new head wrestling coach by the name of Zeke Jones. He'll he'll do really quite uh, a great deal of wonders with uh, with Arizona State's team. Um, again, I, I just don't people. I, I live my life in thirds, thirds of time. I'm in Michigan. Third of, if people want to know what I have coming on up or what all the things I have done, simply by sharing danseverin.com, my website, danseverin.com, because there's too many things to list. Uh, I'm still very active as I travel around doing seminars and everything from mixed martial arts to submission grappling to amateur wrestling, which is what we do as a folk-style sport here in the United States, but then also well-versed in the two international styles of freestyle, Greco-Roman. I've been working with law enforcement since 84, corrections since, excuse me, since 94, corrections since 95, but I also worked with air marshals, border patrol, uh, and our military. So I'm very uh, excited about the mechanics that I started teaching back in 1971 has translated well over to a lot of different areas of how I'm able to break down technique, demonstrate it to individuals, understand their rules of engagement, and show, show them and make them a better widget. Just within the last four months, I was approached by the sheriff's department here in Arizona. And uh, one of the commanders said, could just touch base with me, and he said, he said, Dan, what do you know about cell extractions? You know, when they had to remove a prisoner from, from their, their, their cell. And I, I just said, well, I, I've watched uh, the reality show Lockdown a couple of times where he, he kind of laughed. He says, well, it doesn't exactly happen like that. And uh, I said, well, I said, just bring me on in. I said, let me, let me watch all aspects of it and let me participate in all aspects of it so I can see what happens if you're the guy that's come in to get the, the, the bad guy. And I go, then let me be the bad guy so I can experience it on all aspects of it on top of just viewing it all. And literally, I came up with half a dozen uh, drills for them to do and new ways of doing techniques, uh, of which one, just dealing with, with the bad guy's legs alone, will probably revolutionize that sector. So again, I just, I'm happy knowing that stuff that I have taken from my amateur wrestling career, professional wrestling career, my cage fight career, and have been able to combine it all together to where it's what continues to keep me out there and, and, and continues to keep me employed as well. Fascinating. UFC Hall of Famer, Dan DB7, we can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Well, just touch base with me in another six months, and we'll give you the next update. How's that? Sounds perfect. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Yep, bye. And welcome back to Down the Hour Wrestling Podcast. It's with great pleasure that we welcome to the show today... Kenny Casanova, uh, Ghost Rider, writer with uh, Kamala, uh, James Harris, on Kamala Speaks, a book that came out in last October about the life story and the wrestling story of James Kamala Harris. First of all, Kenny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. First of all, let's explain to our listeners how the idea of the book with Kamala came about and how the process was of recording uh, those interviews that you did that inspired the book. Well, it's funny because uh, James, uh, for people, he's a survivor now, 
of a um, double amputee. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yep. Some kind of noise. No worries. Okay. Uh, yes, and uh, my mother also is diabetic, and I had heard that uh, he was having the same type of issues. Uh, so I pretty much gave him a call and told him, hey, you know, um, I know times are rough right now, but if maybe we could get a book together, it would help you um, offset your medical costs, Chuck. Your story alone, I think, you know, the problem, telling the, telling the story about the problem may help solve some of the problem. And uh, worked with him for about uh, seven, eight months, interviews, interviewing his peers, and um, we put together his book, and it's doing pretty well right now. If you're looking at your, probably like every one of us, a wrestling fan, what inspired you in the Kamala story? What type? What part of the story really grabbed you? Because we all know you had that run in WWE, but that, that's not really the, the, the essence of the book. It's more the unknown about Kamala. So, so what really sparked you in his story? You know, from hearing the interviews, uh, the stuff that I enjoyed putting together and producing with him, uh, the chapters, uh, like you said, wasn't really the wrestling. It was uh, some of his growing up, as a, um, a black youth in Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement and uh, pushed 1950 uh, to 1970 in there. Um, he grew up uh, in a small place outside of Memphis, uh, Coldwater, and Senatobia. And, um, man, he had a bunch of stories about running into problems with the law where uh, his family, family was poor and he wasn't able to... Um, uh, appetite. He, he couldn't fulfill his big appetite. He liked to eat a lot. So he would steal food. And uh, eventually that led to him being run out of town by uh, the sheriff. And he had to leave his high school in uh, middle eighth, ninth grade or so. Went to Florida and uh, started farming as a, as a young teenager in, in, uh, in Florida. So, I mean, there's a lot of survival. The story is very layered uh, in that he had issues with, uh, certainly issues with racism. Uh, you know, down in Mississippi, they were bucking the idea of uh, uh, civil rights and, and, and all, um, more so during that time than anyone else. And then also, you know, later on in life, his uh, diabetic issues. And then along the way, uh, problems with wrestling. Um, he's not a super well-educated guy, so a lot of times promoters took advantage of him. Uh, so it's a constant struggle uh, for survival in the game. Kenny, for me, I'm in my early 30s, so my memories of Kamala were more of the mid, mid-early mid 90s Kamala when he feuded with The Undertaker and did the casket match stuff. For sure. you, just kind of as a, as like a, maybe as like a fan question, what is your earliest memories of Kamala and when did you see him and, you, and kind of what drew you to his character or what drew you to Kamala as, as a man? You see, I'm a little older, so I'm, uh, I'm in my early 40s, and uh, I remember seeing him on the trailers for Coliseum Home Video, which was okay. the early WWE uh, videos. Um, and he was, uh, he was fighting Andre the Giant in Steel Cage. Mm -hmm. And um, also, I was a big world-class guy. I liked to watch the Von Erich, and he showed up there a number of times as well. So I remembered a lot of those appearances. Now, I didn't get Memphis wrestling, and that's where he uh, really, you know, um, started the, the gimmick out with Jerry the King Lawler and Jerry Lawler um, kind of uh, feeding the pieces to the puzzle. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say probably the Andre the Giant 
clips of, uh, of seeing him fight in a steel cage. And um, uh, just like all the other kids back then, uh, you know, most, most of the times if you went and saw a wrestling show live, you would run up. And you'd want to still kind of see if you could slap the, uh, you know, the villain five or, like, pat him on the shoulder or, or what have you. Um, he was the one wrestler that if you saw him live, that wasn't the case. The kids would run the other way, and they wanted nothing to do with him. And I, I think that he, he was so believable in his character um, and so skilled at what he did that I'm not sure anybody else would, um, would have done the role uh, justice. And uh, he was scary, um, a scary character to me, too. When I watched him on TV, I remember thinking to myself, this isn't right. Why did they let him bring a spear to the ring? Why can't he bring a mask to the ring? Like, you know, this guy, he, he looks like he wants to eat somebody. He's slapping his stomach. And, you know, I, I remember getting angry about the character. So he was doing his job right. You said, Kenny, you hit the nail on the head when you said Kamala was believable. Because, yeah, I legit, when I found out that Kamala wasn't from when he wasn't actually the Ugandan giant, he was a guy from Mississippi. I was shocked. Like, <laughs> hey, are you yeah. kidding me? This, you know, this guy's American. That's that's awesome. No, but he, uh, James, played the the character perfectly, and I don't think, and I think you said it perfectly. Like, you really couldn't have had a better guy play it, Kenny. Not a lot of people might know this, but you've you're kind of like a jack of all trades. You've wrestled, you've color commentated, you've managed countless of talents. You run your own DJ business. So my two questions are. When do you get time to sleep? And my second question is, how did you get started in the wrestling business? Okay, uh, questions. All my buddies all say the same thing. When do you have time to sleep? And honestly, I'm probably a bit of a workaholic. Um, and it, it may have cost me from um, But uh, I guess if you really want to do something and do it right, sometimes it takes the extra, you know, hours. And uh, to get this book done and, and be a success for James, it's been a full-time job. I'm really not trying to make any money off of it for myself. Um, we're throwing him all the money we can from it. Uh, and, I, you know, every day, like, I just came back to the post office now. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, mailing, mailing books out. Um, so, yes, it's uh, – I, I got my hand in a lot of things. I guess I like to be creative. I think that's probably one of my biggest traits. And, and in order to be creative – well, yes, it takes time. Uh, your other question was, what was it, the second part of the question? Oh, how did you get started in wrestling? Like, what, oh, okay. did, where did you start? Uh, uh, what happened was, is I was running a comic book store in, what, in a now defunct mall, one of those ghost kind of malls. Not out, it's all gone now here. It's Lake Circle Mall, also a Clifton Country Mall in upstate New York mm-hmm. uh, areas. And in the comic book store, we had a guy who wanted to go to wrestling school. There wasn't one in the area. Now, upstate independent promotion uh, scene is pretty big. There's a lot of little indies and everything. But back then, there was nothing. And we had to we had to travel four hours uh, every weekend. Me and this guy named Thorne. He also went by the name Sweet Pete Waters. We did a couple of things. He traveled around a little bit, uh, did some jobs at Ring of Honor uh, early on. Also traveled with another guy named uh, Dave Deshaun, who was known as, as Danger. Um, had a few others, but we went to this place called Skull Crusher's Gym in Elmira. And uh, one of the people that was in the same class as us, which was the first class, was H.P. Loke, mm-hmm. who some people may remember. Um, he was he did a ref gimmick in ECW where he also ref, and he was in Ring of Honor. He actually booked for Ring of Honor for a while, so he's a, he was a bit of a name. He, he actually recorded the music. Uh, the new Kamala theme that mm-hmm. we used for the trailers and everything. Um, super nice guy. 
So, you know, we did a, a bunch of stuff down there in Elmira. I learned um, with a, a bunch of different wrestlers kind of trained us. The, uh, the guy who was running it was actually a wrestling promoter, and he would bring in different trainers to kind of give us, you know, um, like the basics and all. Some of those were T.C. Reynolds and uh, Preston Steele, who some people may know from WCW. A more known name was uh, uh, Tom Brandy, South and Cedar. Um, yeah. I did a ton of stuff with him early on, so you might know him. Yeah. Uh, they also brought in people like Bam Bam Bigelow and uh, and even the great Virgil himself. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we learned with a, a bunch of those guys, and uh, I learned early on that I could wrestle. That was okay. Uh, but at, at 5'11", just about six foot, I wasn't as big as what was needed then. Um, now, the independent scene is, you know, a lot, it's a lot smaller, a lot more aerial, um, a lot more high-flying, but I was very creative. So it, I started to become a jack-of-all-trades. I wrote the programs. I uh, was a ring announcer. I was uh, a manager most of the time, and uh, I liked to to sing wrestlers to the ring with a cheap karaoke gimmick, like a lounge lizard type of thing. Uh, so that's kind of the background that I came from, uh, all of that uh, creative behind-the-scenes stuff as well as some of the uh, extra stuff needed with talent. Okay. If we go back to the early beginnings of the Kamala, in quotes, story, when he goes to Memphis at the beginning and uh, Jerry Lawler looks at him and slaps a moon and a star on his belly and decides to put him out there. Just how influential was Jerry Lawler in James Harris' career? Uh, very, and also not very. It's a, it's a, it's a two-sided sword. Uh, what happened was is uh, James Harris wasn't getting booked as he went by Sugar Bear, uh, James Harris, uh, Jim Harris, Ugly Bear. He had a bunch of different names um, in the Mississippi Independent area, which I... Um, which was run by the Culkins uh, in that territory. They weren't in NWA, but they did some stuff um, with uh, NWA and AWAs, too. Um, they kind of held their own there, but they, they had some talent at great uh, agreements. Um, eventually, he wasn't getting booked a whole lot, and he moved to Mexico, and he started looking for work there. And then he picked up um, a two-year gig in England, And there was a guy there named Quick Kick Lee that um, accidentally broke his foot in a match. And James decided to come back to America. Now, when he came back, um, he still had cast on his foot. He was looking to get some tights and see if he could set up some kind of new gimmick. And he had thought about doing a uh, tribal-like gimmick. James uh, Harris had traveled around. Uh, he eventually took a gig, a two-year gig over in England. And from there... Uh, a guy named Quick Kick Lee was doing a Bruce Lee-type gimmick, broke his foot accidentally, which actually turned out to be a blessing. Now, when he came back to the States, um, he had uh, been uh, looking for a new gimmick to do, and some different people contacted him and told him, hey, you should try this, and you should try that. I think the great Mephisto um, from, uh, uh, from the Mississippi territories that he'd worked with some... Um, He had told him that you definitely should go and uh, and do an African-type gimmick because while he was in England, he, he started um, taking some different uh, international tours. And one place he went to was Africa. And he came up with the idea to paint his face when he went back to England and started to act like 
a little bit in the early stages of what would be Kamala, but he didn't really have the whole gimmick figured out and broke his foot, came back to America, was looking to kind of get a new gimmick. And there was a guy named, uh, geez, uh, Dream Machine, Dream Machine Graham. Uh, he went to find him during a Memphis show and Jerry Lawler took a look at him and was like, oh, I got an idea for you. I want you to go home right now and not talk to anybody. So Kamal was like, all right. You know, and he said, what's, what's the deal with the cast, though? He's like, oh, the cast is going to come off in a couple of days. But Kamal was supposed to wear that like another like months or something. He wasn't really supposed to be taking it off, but he was excited about maybe getting to work for Memphis. Now, Memphis at the time, they had just did a big run with Andy Kaufman and Jerry the King Lawler, which was famous. So the next big uh, villain was going to be the opposite of Andy Kaufman, who was a little skinny comedian. It was going to be a big monster. They didn't have any big guys in Memphis at the time. They were all kind of medium built. So uh, Jerry the King Lawler brought him down to Jerry Jarrett's farm out back in the woods. Uh, they took a, a tribal mask off of Jerry Jarrett's wall, which became a big part of Kamala's character. They gave him a big spear. They had some earrings they bought at a yard sale and some bracelets that they picked up at the Five and Dime. And uh, they painted him up looking like a comic book character that uh, Jared King Lawler saw from Frank Frazetta, who uh, was an artist for Conan uh, the Barbarian, a Marvel comic. And uh, from there, that's how uh, the Kamala character was born. So it was a little bit of Kamala and a little bit of the Jared King Lawler um, and Jerry Jarrett approach. Uh, but at the same time, Kamala just hates the idea that he didn't come up with the whole look himself as well. And that's why later on, if you've looked in old books, you might see Kamala spelled K-I-M-A-L-A. Uh, Kamala wanted something out of it. James Harris wanted his stamp on the gimmick. So he changed it to K-A. So all these spellings of K-A-M-A-L-A um, were a direct result of James wanting his own personal stamp on on the gimmick after he left Memphis. Um, and just one other side note, uh, James Harris is the first American to wear face paint as part of the character, as part of the gimmick, oh, wow. regular deal. The, the only the person that did it before him was Michael Hayes. And Michael Hayes didn't really paint his face as a regular deal. He just kind of did it here and there, almost like an accessory or almost like a uh, More like you know, an extra added thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, there was, there was Kabuki who did it before Kamala did, um, in Japan. Japan yeah. And that's kind of where, uh, uh, there was another guy too. There was another guy that actually came over to America and I'm, I, his name escapes me at the moment. Um, Gary Hart saw that guy, copied him with Kabuki. And, um, but then James started doing it all the time. And he was the only guy that really made it part of his face, part of his look and when, they, when he was back in Mid-South with uh, Cowboy Bill Watts, we credit him being the best motors ever with earning him the most amount of money, even above and beyond Vince McMahon. Uh, two guys came up to James and they said, uh, how, you know, how do you paint your face like that? Can you show us? We want to do something like that. And those two guys were called the Blade Runners. <laughs> and then years later, that was Sting painting his face and Ultimate Warrior. So... Kamala was the one that showed him how to paint the face, what to use, and how to do it, you know, and make it look good. Um, awesome. And they made a lot of money off of that. And it, and it paid off for him, too, because later on, when Kamala wasn't making a whole lot of money, 
WWE. Maybe, you know, some people would argue he's taken advantage of a little bit. He, he wasn't very good in negotiating, not too good with numbers. Um, uh, the Ultimate Warrior came up to him and said, hey, man, whenever you're on a show with me, I want you to jump in the limo with me. We'll just, we'll just uh, I don't want to say break kayfabe, but we'll just, like, uh, you know, get you in there at a different time, move the limo and get me in there that we don't have to drive and pay for any travel. And if you're ever on an airplane, I'm buying you the ticket. And if you're ever in the same hotel, I'm buying you the room uh, because I'm making plenty of money, man. So Ultimate Warrior, who a lot of people didn't like working with, and even James said his matches weren't that great. They were like, uh, James says, you know, I would work for him in 30 seconds. It would be done right after that, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Warrior went above and beyond to try to help him out when he knew that James wasn't making a whole lot of money. So I thought that was a pretty cool story. And that was the kind of paying back probably for the face paint help in the uh, Mid-South days. That's, that's good. That kind of stuff is good to hear. Kenny, my question is, and kind of uh, like if the, the listeners would probably want to know too, you kind of touched upon it at the beginning about uh, Kamala's, you know, the, the diabetes and unfortunately losing both of his legs. Sure. How, is, how is Kamala doing? And, you know, how is, yeah, just basically how is he doing and how is he holding up? He's doing a bit better. Uh, we had a little scare right a little bit before the last proof was going into the book when we uh, set up the Kickstarter. Uh, the book had been written since July or something, but um, believe it or not, when you're in self-publishing, which was the best answer for Kamala because he'd get to keep the most of the money self-publishing mm-hmm. over uh, publishers and all. Um, he keeps all of it. There's no middleman. Uh, when you're in the self-publishing to get get it edited and get it uh, laid out and to get everything done, it takes a number of months. So we probably finished, we probably wrapped it up in, in July or so, or, you know, writing the book, but, um, took a while. We were about set to, to release it and give it, give the rewards first out on um, the first print, the book to everybody, um, that had donated to the Kickstarter to make the book happen for him as a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Um, James got real sick in November, just before we could print it. And he, uh, he had a real bad stomach infection, uh, something called like perinditis or totus or something like that. Is that the same um, thing that Brock Lesnar had? Yeah, that was the verticalitis. Oh, okay. I just, the vitus, okay. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's something like, it's a stomach infection and it's life-threatening. And we had a couple of scary weeks there. Um, and the way we had talked to James, we weren't going to release the book until he got the thumbs up and liked the design like the layouts and everything like that. And then we were laid up for a few weeks. You know, I'm getting all these emails. Was the book worth the book? And I'm like, guys, hang on, please. You know, you will get your book. You know, um, while there were tons of people who were super happy to help James and all, there's always a few in the, in the internet community, you know, that have that negative uh, negativity. So Don't we know. Uh, yep. Yeah. Where's my book? Where's my book? So there was a lot of that. And, um, Finally, James made it through, and he, he was doing pretty well. We got him a look at the book, and we rushed to get it. And I probably missed a handful of edits um, that I wish I had done. Uh, just a couple of, I would guess there's probably a handful, maybe six or seven typos in there that we missed. Um, but nobody seems to care. And they've gotten the book, and we're getting all kinds of reviews um, that this is one of the best books that they've ever read with all the different wrestlers who have contributed. I mean, we've got Jim Ross, who wrote The Buffest, uh, Mick Foley wrote it, wrote a, uh, a forward as well as 
uh, Violent J from the ICP, uh, Chavo Guerrero, um, Jerry Jarrett wrote something, Cowboy Bill Watts wrote something, Coco Beware. Um, we also had passages by Jim Duggan, um, Jake the Snake Roberts, Kevin Sullivan, all kinds of people. When I called them up and said, hey, can you give us a little bit for the book? We got all kinds of stuff, and they helped fill out stories and make the stories more rich. We got dialogue. Um, the book really reads more like a story in that there's a lot of correct dialogue of, you know, an exchange. So it wasn't just um, uh, Andre the Giant was backstage and he, had, he got in a scuffle with me, you know, Kamala speaking. It, you hear what Andre said and you hear what, what uh, James said to him and you know who was in there and who else spoke in the locker room, um, Dick Murdoch and different people. And so uh, I think, I think if uh, people give it a chance and check out KamalaSpeaks.com uh, and they're interested in the book, uh, they'll follow along with a lot of other people are saying is that's a very different book and um, reads like an actual story. I'm also an English teacher. So I've had a number of years writing and uh, teaching writing, and I think I figured out from teaching my classes what the kids like, what the wrestling fans would like to hear. It's a lot of voice, a lot of characterization and stuff. I think we, we did a good job with that. So if you're interested in the book, KamalaSpeaks.com, and I guess, Kenny, is it available on uh, Amazon as well? Yep, it's available on Amazon. On Amazon, um, you can get the traditional book. Um, if you're looking for an autographed copy, which um, pretty much the only way to get that right now because Kamala's not able, um, due to health restrictions, to do a whole lot of autograph signings, Kamala Speaks is a good place to get that. Um, and also, if you're into the idea of really helping them out, it's better to buy at Kamala Speaks because uh, KamalaSpeaks.com, uh, there's no middleman. It's uh, There's no Amazon taking a cut. So we'll direct the listeners to KamalaSpeaks.com. Kenny Casanova, thank you very much for taking the time to speak about to, uh, about Kamala today. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate the plugs that you guys could give us. It's oh. our pleasure, and hopefully we can talk to you down the road. Great. Thanks. All right, without further ado, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. Or the godfather of MMA, if you like. Get out of my way! It's with great pleasure that we welcome UFC Hall of Famer, mixed martial art legend, pro wrestling legend, Ken Shamrock to the show. Welcome to the show, Ken. Well, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. First of all, I want to start to talk with you about your upcoming uh, hands-free, no-glove, fist-to-fist fight. Uh, how did that fight came up, Ken? Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've always been one foot in and one foot out of the MMA world and, and the fighting world, uh, waiting for different types of opportunities that might come my way that would be interesting for me to get back in the ring and fight. Uh, obviously, I'm not looking just to get in the ring and fight. I want things that are interesting, that are fun, and that would be fun for me and fun for the fans. Uh, and, of course, they make sense. Um, so, basically, I've been going more toward the direction of of a business trying to build different types of businesses uh and things were going very well for me uh as a matter of fact uh shamrock slam uh we're getting ready to launch that in a week 
with some crowdfunding and getting people involved. That's an exciting venture going on. We've got a Shamrock Executive Protection Agency, which is is uh, probably three quarters of the way done. Um, I get some protection work, some uh, different types of work to try to get an idea and a feel of whether or not something I wanted to own my own business in. I did that. It was good. I thought we could really do something with it with my ideas and my creativity, so we're moving forward on that. And, um, you know, different opportunities that uh, uh, we've got a, a, a website up now. It's called 33. Um, we'll probably change that name, but, but as of now, it's 33. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's an amateur uh, fighting source for coaches, for gyms, for fighters, and it's a site for people to go to as amateurs. We're getting ready to launch that. Um, and, um, of course, we got Pro Rage, which is our professional fighter management corporate company um, where uh, we bring in professional athletes and we manage them uh, in their career. Um, and that right there, I can tell you on those things, I'm also um, probably about eight hours away uh, from uh, signing a deal with a, the largest amateur fighting organization in the world and becoming partners, uh, um, locking arms with them, moving forward to help develop some of the newest and, and some of the most exciting amateur fighters uh, in the world and develop them into pros. Um, and so that probably about eight hours away from uh, making that um, real. So when you talked about me getting involved with this bare knuckle, the reason why I brought up these other opportunities that um, we've been working on is I want people to realize that these things were real. These things are actually moving forward as I'm even making plans to move forward for bare-knuckle fighting along with some other interesting uh, uh, fights that uh, come my way, other good opportunities, I believe, for myself and the fans. So these, the, all these things are still moving forward. All these businesses are still moving forward, but I was approached during all of these things that I was working on. Uh, my mind wasn't focused on fighting. Uh, I hadn't been thinking really much about it, but I always knew that I wanted at least to fight two or three more times with fights that made sense. A fight came to me. They brought this guy named Deke Hagee, uh, who uh, had been doing some bare-knuckle fighting. Uh, the guy has some pretty decent potential. He's a young kid. Uh, looks like uh, he has all the intensity in the world. Looks like he could probably go places. But it as I was watching it and looking at it, I, I couldn't really feel the, the marketing uh, ability. How do, I how do I market this fight? How do I make this fight exciting for people and myself when there's really nothing there that I see for myself to do other than just being another fight? And so I turned it down, uh, not to do with anything about uh, Deca Hagee. I think he's probably a great opponent. But it just didn't make sense marketing-wise, and it didn't, I didn't know how I would market it for me to step back into the ring to fight again, especially at my age. So we, we, we turned and we walked away from it and said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I just don't see an opportunity here to really market this fight. And um, so they came back to us about three weeks later, and they gave us a name, um, James Quinn. And uh, they told us a bit about him, and I said, okay, well, let me look into it. And as I started looking into it, I started seeing, I started to see it like, okay, this has got some legs. I can market this. This guy is undefeated, bare knuckle fighting, uh, great attitude, got a really tremendous history in, in this. Um, and so I said, okay, well, I, the fighter seems real. 
seems like we could market this. Now I want to do a little bit more in-depth research on, you know, whether or not there's enough people out there that would be interested in something like this, or do we have to build it from the ground up? And so I started doing some research, going through some social media sites, looking for different types of bare-knuckle fighting. I saw all kinds of different things. One where the, they wore this glove with the knuckles cut out, and the knuckles would never touch you. Uh, but, yeah, because the knuckles were exposed and they had a, uh, an inch and a half of glove, um, above the knuckle, they could call it bare knuckle, which was stupid. Um, so I said, well, that's obviously not what we're looking at. So I looked a little bit more, and then I saw uh, this documentary on uh, James Quinn, and then I, I saw some of these fights that were happening when, in, in these bale, between these bales of hay and on dirt gravel roads. And it was quite interesting, too, because the more I watched it, when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, this is not very good. But the more I watched it, the more I saw how many people turned to the site to at least watch this thing. They turned away. They didn't stay long. It was probably 30 seconds to a minute was the average person that would stay and watch. And the reason being is because it was the, the, uh, the caliber of fighters that were fighting in these fights. Most of them didn't last a minute or 30 seconds. And if they did, it got sloppy after a minute. Um, but the excitement is there. The people want it, and I started thinking to myself, this is a lot like Knowles Holes Bard. When I first started doing it, people would come to watch it, but they realized the attention span didn't go very far because most of the time the fights were finished in 30 seconds or a minute, and if they didn't finish that long, the guys got so tired that they were tripping and falling over each other. But people wanted to see it anyways. And I see the same kind of excitement for this bare-knuckle fighting that I've seen with no holds barred. The opportunities there, people want to see it. All we got to do is get in the caliber fighters that will turn it to a professional level. And so I thought me and James Quinn would be great guys to go in and actually do that, considering with his tremendous amount of experience in bare knuckle, uh, his history in bare knuckle, and then, of course, my experience in bare knuckle and my experience in no holds barred uh, and my my following and his following and I thought you know what this is a good thing and so I jumped on board we did the contract make sure everybody was happy and uh, and and that was that and so the more that I'm going into this fight the more I'm training the more interviews I'm doing I'm seeing everybody else seeing what I'm seeing they see this thing as being something big all right and what is the date of that fight I know it's in April but what's the precise date that I can What's that? What's the precise date of the fight? I know it's in April, but what's the date? Yeah, they don't. They they got a couple venues right now vying for the fight. Uh, I would probably say more like August. I know we were talking about June, but you need six months to uh, the pay per view companies. Mm-hmm. They need at least six, four to six months to market a fight properly. And so, if you're looking at June, we're running out of that time frame. So August looks to be to me the best place to have this fight all right if we go back to your legendary mixed martial art and uh, no holds barred career you had many different rivalries and uh here's a question that asked dan severn a couple weeks which was one of your rivalries Uh, what is the one mindset that you need to get into the octagon for a tournament going to ufc3 uh watching you was um a momentous moment in my in my life. I fell in love with mixed martial art watching you and Dan Severn back in the early 90s. But what was the mindset when you first walked into the octagon for the first time? Well, 
I, I think you've got to be very focused on the guy in front of you. I think you can't think about you. Uh, a lot of guys will go in and, and they'd start thinking about, well, I've got another fight, so I've got to think about it. You know what? You, uh, you don't think about it. You focus on the guy in front of you. You focus with the fight that you got. You finish that fight, and then immediately when you're done with that fight, you've got to focus on the next one, and you've got to focus on what you're going to do because you don't get a plan for an opponent because you don't know who's going to win the next fight. So you, you, you just don't know. So that, that kind of preparation is out the window. What you got to do is mentally focus on yourself and what you need to do to win the fight. And you have to do it within a 15 to 20 minute time span. Because when you win your first fight, you know you got to go in and fight this guy. You beat this guy. The next guy, you don't know who it's going to be. It's going to be one of the two guys. So you don't plan for that. You just basically focus on the fight, beat the guy you're fighting, once you're done with that fight, then you focus on whoever wins that next fight, and you only have 15 or 20 minutes to do that, to be able to focus on your next opponent. So I think me personally in that is more about focusing on what's at hand and what's in front of you and not worrying about what's around you or what's coming up. Ken, you were a part of arguably one of the best WrestleMania matches in history at WrestleMania 13 with Stone Cold and Bret Hart. As, as the referee. Now, I know you trained earlier in the 90s as a pro wrestler and I think in the late 80s as well, but can you tell our listeners how you actually got involved in the WWF? Did Vince McMahon approach you and what was it like to work in that uh, WrestleMania 13 match? Well, I tell you, the reason why I got involved in wrestling was because at that time, um, MMA was really taking a huge hit on pay-per-view. They were getting blocked. They weren't able to... Um, uh, have the events in certain states. So a couple times they had to set up. It was actually in, um, in I believe it was in Carolina. I could be wrong, mm-hmm. but we were in one of the other states, and they were they actually after they had already set it up, they're getting ready to prepare to do the fight. The, the court had handed an injunction down and banned the event from happening. So they had to load everything up on a plane, a big 747 plane, two of them. You had to load all the rain and every, all the all the cameras, everything that happened for the production. They loaded on one plane, and then everybody else went on another plane. And we flew into Dothan, Alabama, and set that ring up uh, in the morning uh, of the fight, uh, and then ended up having that fight that night and giving the tickets away for free to the people in Dothan in order to keep this fight on so that there was something they could show on TV because they had already paid for that pay-per-view time. Mm-hmm. So these were things was what was happening in the MMA world. And it got to a point to where Bob Meyerowitz had spent so much money fighting uh, every, every town he went to, we had to go to court uh, to be able to get the fight to happen. And basically what it did is it really wore him down and financially, and, and he had to just, at, a, at, a, at one point, he just said, hey, listen, I can't afford to pay you um, what, what we agreed upon. And I understood where he was at. I wasn't mad. I understood where he was at. I knew the battles that they had been going through from state to state, everywhere they were having a fight. And I had to make a decision at that time whether or not I could continue to keep doing MMA um, or or I had to make another move. And, and the position I was in at the time was that I couldn't pay my bills if I didn't get the contract that I was promised. And so I had a conversation with Bob Meyerowitz. It was a pleasant conversation. I told him my position. He understood. Uh, and we both went our separate ways, uh, him selling the company and me moving on into to pro wrestling. And that's how it all started was because there was a lot of issues happening 
with the UFC at that time, and Bob Meyer was trying to fight in court in every state he went, trying to keep it alive. And uh, so I got involved with pro wrestling because I needed to make another another move in order to support my family. And, and Vince McMahon um, welcomed me with, with, with uh, his arms wide open. Uh, he had an idea and a, and a creation uh, that he was thinking about bringing me in to help change pro wrestling, and it was I thought it was a great move. But, but one thing I think I really want people to know before I get into WrestleMania 13 um, is that uh, people don't understand the reasons why they're watching uh, MMA today. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they were able to watch MMA today was because of the hard work um, including myself, because I was in a lot of these different court things, and I testified and even went on TV with uh, Senator McCain, and, mm-hmm. and I took a strong stance uh, um, for MMA. And, but Bob Meyerowitz and, and, and even um, um, you know, different people within the organization put a lot of time, even John McCarthy, the referee, put a lot of time in the fighting in every state that we went to, they would be in court fighting for our right to have this event put on. And if it wasn't for that, and Bob Meyer was spending that money to do that, MMA would be gone. So the guys like Dana White and Fertitas and all the fighters fighting in the UFC now are, are reaping the benefits and the rewards of the hard work and, and the stressful situations in which Bob Meyerowitz and a lot of these other guys, John McCarthy and a lot of these other guys behind the scenes that were fighting in court to keep it alive. It's, that is so underrated that people don't even talk about that. But that's really the reason why MMA is still around was because of those guys' efforts in fighting from state to state to keep MMA alive. And, and Dana White and Fertitta should be thanking this guy for all the work and the hard stuff that he put in to keep it alive. And these guys are now reaping the benefits because he fought those times to keep it alive. Mm-hmm. Now, let's move into WrestleMania. Uh, but, you know, Vince had, a, had an idea bringing me in. He, he saw a popular that uh, MMA was. He, he saw how the, everybody was really going, wow, did you see a bare knuckle fight? And it seemed to be this trend going on that people really wanted to see these fights. And so I think Vince has already, always had his finger on the pulse on what's going on in the world by him bringing in different celebrities to do these celebrity matches uh, at different times for WrestleMania, bringing in guys like Mike Tyson and, and, uh, and uh, uh, what's his name, the linebacker Lawrence from... Taylor. Lawrence Taylor and, and so many other people that have been brought in to to kind of give that extra fan support with these guys that are really trending out there in the in the world. Vince is really good at that, and he saw an opportunity with a guy like myself who really um, was the face of No Holds Barred, and he saw an opportunity to bring me in, uh, me becoming a free agent, and be able to bring me in as who I was. Um, the world's most dangerous man, bare knuckle, no holes barred. And he knew that they were having issues because they lost all their superstars to WCW. And he had to find something that was going to keep him alive, keep him to survive. And genius, it was a genius movie, brought me in and, and he felt like, you know what, let's push the envelope a little bit. Uh, let's, 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 let's turn somebody uh, that's going to be saying the word ass on TV and being able to beat up his boss and, 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 and rebel against authority. And so here he was trying to create this edgy product. 
And he thought, well, the biggest thing out there that's edgy right now is Noel's Bar. He brought me in. He took a guy like Bret Hart, who was on, living on the edge. He took a guy like Stone Cold Steve Austin, who is also a guy that lives on the edge. And a guy myself, who is uh, arguably the world's most dangerous man in the world. <laughs> and he puts him into a match. And it's a, it's a I quit match. It's a match where somebody has to say uncle or I give up. And uh, the two guys were tremendously uh, talented in being able to put that kind of a match on. And then throwing me in the mix was like the icing on the cake, which made it real, which made everything roll perfect. Yeah. And uh, so once that happened, you saw pro wrestling change. You saw pro wrestling go, oh, my gosh, did you just see what happened? Um, I mean, it was like watching an MMA match where people were like, did that really just happen? Did that just happen? Did, and that's what they were saying with this. Did that just happen? These guys just go in there and fight each other? Uh, and so uh, it was tremendous. And then you saw Stone Cold and Brad Hart, both those guys, just go to another level. You had the Canadian Stampede. We had the eight-man tag. It was just tremendous. It was like from that point, we rose to levels that had never been seen before. And it was because of that match. Ken, you're also a part of one of my favorite – actually, I'm going to say my favorite – stable in wrestling history and i will i have a bit of a confession for you and i don't mean to bring up my inner nerd but we had our own version of the corporation in high school now mind you the guy who played you was not nearly your size but you know he was the biggest guy that we had so we're like okay you're ken shamrock um <laughs> but can you tell us a little bit what it was like to be a part of the corporation and just basically being part of the attitude era in general and just how what you guys exactly did to not only I don't want to say put WCW out of business, but really just turn it around to make the WWF doing ridiculous ratings. Well, I, you know, I guess it goes from like this being a pro wrestler where, where, you know, you, 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 you were a pro wrestler and you walked around and people asked what you did. You say, Hey, I'm a pro wrestler. But when, when, when we started changing to the attitude era, it was almost like then when people asked what we did, we said, yeah, yeah, man, we're pro wrestlers. There was a certain pride um, that arose uh, throughout the world, whether it was in football or wrestling or uh, anywhere. It became you became proud to be a part of pro wrestling. Mm -hmm. um, that attitude era it really brought in that ruggedness, that toughness, that made people proud to say, "Hey, I watch wrestling," or "Hey, I am a wrestler," or "Hey, I'm going to the wrestling matches tonight." Um, it was a huge change from before that where you had half the world saying, yeah, that stuff's a joke, a bunch of comic characters, uh, to where people were actually going, even on regular mainstream TV, they were actually showing different things that went on in pro wrestling. It became something special, and people were proud to be a part of pro wrestling. Uh, Ken, I was also growing up... And to this day, actually, to this day, I was a big fan of uh, Owen Hart. And I kind of asked Dan Severn this because you guys, the three of you really had, and Steve Blackman, I guess, the four of you guys really had a similar style. What was it like to work with Owen Hart? And do you have any memories? And do you, were you ever a victim of any Owen's uh, famous pranks? Well, I'll tell you, um, Owen was a tremendous person to work with. Um, he had a really great mind for angles and uh, really a good hand at working. Um, could do anything you asked him to. Um, uh, just a great person to be around. Um, 
uh, I remember we did the Dungeon match and, and also the Lions Den match, and, and those were two two very, very difficult places to work matches um, because you didn't have the ropes, the turnbuckles, or the apron to fall out on. And, uh, it, it was just, it was straight work um, when we did those matches, and Owen was a perfect guy for me to do it with because he had a tremendous work ethic. I, myself, had a tremendous work ethic, and we were able to constantly keep action flowing in those matches and uh, I, I i i would love to see um a lot of people be able to, to do the match that me and owen did uh whether it was in the lion's den match or whether it was in the dungeon and see whether or not anybody could could duplicate what we did absolutely ken a uh, last question before i let you go uh, I am really interested in the art of catch as catch can, and it's a dying art, unfortunately, nowadays with everything else existing. Uh, what did catch and catch can bring you when you were learning it in uh, late 80s, early 90s, and how did it prepare you for everything else that you did in your life? Well, it, it for one, it gave you confidence whenever you went into the ring. Um, you, you knew who you were, and you knew in any situation that you were going to be okay. Um, and that's not the same. That is, that's not what most people are today uh, in pro wrestling. Is a lot of these guys they're coming in and it's strictly show. Um, but you know, you talk about the old school wrestlers, and even in the Attitude Era, it just seemed like everybody there um, could handle themselves in the ring if they had to. Um, and uh, it was it was different. It was just different. And uh, um, so that Cactus Cast wrestling was really something that really. Uh, it gave you a tremendous amount of confidence and the ability to be able to actually put on some good matches because you were able to work. You were able to get down and dirty and get and get sweaty and and uh, and move around and, and hustle and, and flow. And, uh, and so I think it really transpired into uh, people not knowing whether that was real or not real. And uh, I think that's what's missing today. Thanks, Ken, for your time and looking forward to see your fight. Hey, this is Ken Shamrock, world's most dangerous man, and they call me the Godfather. You're listening to Down the Aisles. And welcome back to Down the Aisle Wrestling Podcast. It's with great pleasure, honor, and uh, so happy to receive Jimmy Corderas, former referee for the World Wrestling Entertainment, WWF even back then. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. First of all, it's... uh, Royal Rumble in the next couple of days. Uh, what's your first thought when you think about the Royal Rumble? Um, I was. Uh, it, it's kind of like other than WrestleMania. Obviously, WrestleMania is the biggest, uh, the biggest event of the year. But the Royal Rumble is almost like my second favorite because it's it's the most fun because it's at times, especially this year. And I I don't mean to jump ahead too much, but. It's so unpredictable, and you know, you, there's some a lot. Of, every year, you get some kind of surprise in the Royal Rumble, which is kind of cool. But it sets the tone for WrestleMania, and it sets the direction, and that's 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 what I love most about it. You spoke about it's. You can't predict what's going to happen this year. When you're looking at it this year, uh, did you expect, with especially with this Monday, last Monday? Do you know where it's going? Do you think it's going to be Rain? Do you think it's going to be Brian? There's a couple of different storylines. Uh, I'm all confused. How are you feeling right now just a couple of days before the Rumble? Um, yeah, exactly. Like you, it's up in the air. I can go either way. Obviously, Daniel Bryan and Roman Reigns are the two favorites. 
doing the rumble and you can make a case for both of them just like in the main event the triple threat you can make a case for all three guys winning that match as well but um i, I like the fact that it, that it is not as predictable and you know uh, a lot of wrestling fans one of their biggest uh, criticisms is that oh wrestling is too predictable sometimes mm-hmm. and i don't have a problem with it being predictable it's the way you tell the story and how you get there which is important for me but uh, i like the fact that sometimes it can be unpredictable and this in in and this sunday at the royal rumble definitely unpredictable and you mentioned it. We there's many different possibilities where they can go with Reigns, with Bryan, with Ambrose, Wyatt, with everyone, especially with all the old school that happened on Monday. Did do you feel this year the kind of like put the reset button? It doesn't feel as uh, the, the Rumble itself. It feels more unpredictable, but more up in the air. It feels like there's a, a an excitement that was almost forgotten the last couple of years. What do you think brought that this year? Um, I think a lot of things. I think newer superstars are starting to emerge. Um, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with the established guys. Obviously, you know, the guys like John Cena, the the Randy Ortons, the veterans that are there uh, will have their spot. And it's up to the young guys to, they're not going to give up their spot. It's the young guys got it. That's the whole thing. And there's this misconception where everybody says, well, they're not given the opportunity. If you notice this year, the opportunity is there. It's just like guys are reaching for it. They're grabbing it. They're uh, Look at Seth Rollins. Seth Rollins has become the uh, biggest heel in the company right now. And he's doing it. He's doing a great job. You look at uh, guys. Daniel Bryan is hugely over with the audience in a very organic way. It, it wasn't forced. It just, it just, Worked out that way. Dean Ambrose is doing great. Uh, for all the criticisms for Roman Reigns, I think he's doing a great job. Uh, if you, if you, uh, here in Canada, we got to watch SmackDown, of course, a day early than the United States. Mm-hmm. And if you saw him last night in his promo with uh, in his interview with Renee Young backstage, he was fine on the mic. He seemed more comfortable. He seems to be getting into a groove, and that, that's the way he is in the ring. So the younger guys are starting to step up. So you're seeing almost like. They're, they haven't taken over yet, but they're poised to start taking over from the veterans. And, and like I said, it's up to them to grab that spot, not not to be handed that spot. Yeah, just a quick side note. I think you're right. I think the new generation now compared to the one about the Ziggler, Sheamus, the one a couple of years ago, I think this one have a, a little bit of a chip on their shoulder and they have, they're out to prove themselves, which the other generation would be a little too nice and didn't want to do any waves. This, those guys, they don't care. They're going to take it. Yeah, yeah, I agree, totally. Uh, going back to the Royal Rumble, and as a former referee, I know you've been involved in many of them. How, how's your feeling? How do you expect those matches? Are you a little scared? Because there's a lot of bodies, a lot of limb in per square feet, and you can get injured quickly. Uh, how do you approach the Royal Rumble as a referee? Um, basically, it's it's more like you got to have your head kind of like on a swivel and pay attention to to what's going on at, at the beginning, obviously when there's fewer guys in the ring, it's not as uh, as much of an issue, but once it's, the ring starts filling up with guys, you kind of kind of pay attention. I remember one year, uh, another former referee, Jack Doan, uh, after an elimination, he was, you know, outside the ring looking after the talent that just got the, that got eliminated. Someone else got eliminated right behind him and landed right on top of him. And actually uh, he suffered a mild concussion from it. 
So you you got it's not only obviously the the risks are there for the talent in the ring, but even as a referee, if you're not paying attention and somebody's flying over that top rope, uh, you can get hurt. That's exactly what was my thinking because you're always close to the ring on the outside, close to the barricade, but there's people flying up in the air, landing left and right, and doesn't take a lot to receive a boot to the face or a smack across the face uh, out of nowhere. Oh, absolutely, and it, and it could happen just like that too. What's the greatest moment that's etched in your memory, Jimmy, about the Royal Rumble? What's the most magical moment that is for you, the Royal Rumble? Oh, there's a there's a so many of them. I mean, like it was fun back in 2001 when uh, when Drew Carey came out as a surprise entrance into the Royal Rumble and was face to face with Kane and. He kind of dropped all that money in the ring, and I had to scoop it all up. Uh, <laughs> I didn't keep it, contrary to what some people think. I didn't keep it. I gave it back. But uh, that um, Cena coming back in 2008 when he had the uh, the surgery on his pectoral, torn pectoral, and that year they were worried that he was going to miss WrestleMania, but him coming back even at the Royal Rumble so early, um, he's just a, a physical freak of nature when it comes to uh, to to physic as a physical specimen in recovery you know what to be honest with you my favorite was probably 2005 when we had the uh um again john cena and, and dave batista went over the top rope at the same time uh unfortunately it was also the night uh, the chairman blew out both his quads uh -huh. storming to the ring but I, you know what that that was very exciting it was again something that wasn't Confusing, uh, too. I watched it, was it last night because it wasn't in the cards, you know. It just turned out that way, and it actually added more excitement than than what was originally scheduled. So uh, it's you know, funny we you mentioned this to me because I watched it last night, so it's I'm, yeah. it's really fresh in my mind. I see Vince coming down the aisle, throwing the jacket, being so mad and gesticulating, and then sliding in the ring and just slam both quads, yeah. just give up, and he's just standing there. And for I that know. couple minutes, people are just, wow, just confused what is going on. And he's in pain, but the poker face on that man, wow. Oh, yeah. And and here's the thing, too. We were confused, too, because we didn't know. We had no idea what was going on. He wasn't going to tell us in the ring, obviously. But uh, the, the, the amazing thing is when he restarted the match, uh, he slid out under the bottom rope, and he walked back on wow. two torn quads. I mean, obviously, he wasn't walking... Uh, well, but he walked back to the back on two torn quads. That man is just, uh, <laughs> yeah, he he's not gonna he's not gonna show any fear, any pain, anything. That's determination for you. If you think about the, the closing moments of the Rumble this Sunday, what could be your prediction, Jimmy? Um, for me, this is my prediction, and and, I've, and I know a lot of fans want to see Daniel Bryan win the Rumble especially considering what happened last year, even though he did get his WrestleMania moment, uh, actually two WrestleMania moments last year because he had the opening match against Triple H, which was fantastic. And yeah. then, of course, going off the air with Daniel Bryan and the WWE Championship, I he's already over huge with the crowd. And there's this weird misconception with the audience sometimes that if you're not the champion... You're being held down, but that's not the case. This guy is already over, and in my opinion, it's a testament to him that he doesn't need the championship to be hugely popular. So this is the time to build someone else, and I think you can do that with the Roman Reigns if the vocal 
minority out there doesn't you know crap on him and and doesn't give him a chance because I think the opportunity is there to make another big star if you know what I mean absolutely would you use Daniel Bryan to get other people over then because Daniel Bryan the fact is that he's over I don't say make him lose but partner him up with somebody use his fame and charisma maybe to help somebody else get to that level yeah, you can do that, but in my thinking, I think going forward, maybe into WrestleMania, because I know a lot of people like the the David and Goliath dynamic of Daniel Bryan versus Brock Lesnar, but you can get that same David and Goliath story told with Daniel Bryan versus someone like a Rusev, and, Rusev and, and him have, challenging Rusev for the United States Championship, making him tap out, being the first guy to make Rusev tap out at, at uh, WrestleMania, and, you know, I, obviously some people say, well, it's kind of a demotion for Daniel Bryan to be the United, to go from WWE champion to U.S. champion. I look at it the other way. I think it actually elevates the United States championship yeah. to have someone like Daniel Bryan holding it. And right so now it's probably I, the I only title that's worth. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's a win-win. It's probably the only title that's worth something now, too, with the fact that the WWE championship was out of TV for months. The Intercontinental Championship is a losing championship. So you get the only U.S. title left. Yeah, but but again, even with the WWE Championship, I I I get the frustration with uh, with uh, Brock Lesnar not being there every week and stuff like that. Uh, um, I'm okay with him not being there every week because it only works for someone like Brock. Do you know what I mean? If it was somebody else, if it was a regular superstar on the roster who's 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 like a full time guy, it wouldn't work. But because Brock is who he is, and he's like a, he's just. Uh, he's a special athlete. He's a, he's a one of a kind, uh, you know, superstar. And and despite the fact that he's gone for long stretches of time, when he comes back, you see the reaction he gets. It's unbelievable. So it, with him, it kind of works. But with anybody else, I don't think it would. You mentioned Brock, and here's the last question before I let you go, Jimmy. And it's going to be about Brock. It's not if he's going to stay or not. There was hints, huge hint, that he's going to become a uh, babyface baby. So <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see how they pull it off and how they do the official turn. And I think they have a shot of putting Brock Lesnar over as much as he ever been in his entire career. How do you see Brock in the next two months? Well, obviously on Monday night, definitely the seeds were planted because we saw him uh, you know, go after the biggest heel, Seth Rollins. But at the same time, you know, with John Cena involved in the mix, it, it's uh, the the Philly crowd. It's going to be interesting Sunday because you know the Philly crowd's probably going to be anti John Cena. They always oh, yeah. are. Um, I, I'm, uh, you know, just on a side note, I'm I'm a big Cena supporter. I don't get the hate, but that's just me. Um, um, uh, Brock, I think, could work as a babyface because. Like, again, he's that special kind of athlete. And as much as you want to hate him, even as a heel, you know, you look at him and you, and you just realize that, man, he's just an ass-kicking machine. And people like that nowadays. You know what I mean? That's that's. You look at Stone Cold. What did he do? He, you know, he just stomped mud holes in people and people like that. And Brock is kind of like that lone wolf where, you know, he doesn't have any friends. He's kind of like a, an island unto himself, and that works. People like that sort of thing. That's why I think uh, going, again, off the rails a little bit, a guy like Dean Ambrose has a huge opportunity to succeed because he's kind of like that lone wolf kind of guy. But for Brock, it'll, it can work as a, as a baby face as well. 
the seed is definitely planted. I hope they don't separate him and Paul Heyman because it was done a few years ago when when Heyman turned on Brock and sided with the Big Show. Yeah. Again at the Royal Rumble, I think they're planting that seed to to, to maybe get people thinking that direction, but I hope it doesn't happen. Jimmy Carreras, thank you very much for taking the time to be in part of Down the Hour Wrestling Podcast today and have a great Royal Rumble this Sunday. You too. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. We thank you for listening to Down the Hour Wrestling Podcast with Robbie Mack and Kevin Laramie on Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio, the podcast application. Take it to the level of perfection. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Listen to all the Afterward Work Studios family shows, but especially Down the Hour Wrestling Podcast. And that, my friends, is just perfect. <laughs>